Welcome to Ideas Matter. I'm Alistair Donald, Secretary of the BOI Educational and Citizenship Charity. This is the final episode in our series, The Use and Abuse of History, the series of talks recorded at the BOI event, The Academy Online, held in April 2021. We'll get going with the talk soon, but first, an appeal. To undertake the work that we do at the BOI, whether putting on this regular event, the Academy, running our school's debating championships, debating matters, or Living Freedom, our annual residential school giving young people the chance to explore ideas related to liberty and freedom, we do really rely on financial support from those that appreciate our work. If you can see your way to giving us a donation, large or small, then we'd really appreciate it. Donations are the means through which we survive, and as society starts to open up again, we have many plans that we want to undertake, and your support can help us not just survive, but thrive. To find out more about our work, and to make a donation, please do visit our website, theboi.co.uk, and hit the donate button. Many thanks. In this podcast, we feature two talks that explore the shifting interpretations of the founding ideals of the United States of America. We hear from Dr. Cheryl Hudson, lecturer in US political history at the University of Liverpool, and Professor Francis Buckley, foundation professor, George Mason University, and a political commentator and the author of The Way Back, Restoring the Promise of America. Before we hear from them, and to provide some context, Here's Jacob Reynolds, the co-convener of the Academy. Of course, throughout American history, it's always been bound up with the question of returning to its roots and looking back at that uh, moment of foundation and reassessing it anew each generation. But uh, recently, I think we can say that it's definitely taken uh, on on a real intensity and uh, following hot on the uh, heels of obviously the uh, last summer's Black Lives Matter protests and the discontent uh, across America that's arisen in various situations uh, and added to that the uh, sort of growth of interest in the New York Times' 1619 project, which has been attempting to uh, uh, sort of revisit American uh, foundation. This question, what does America stand for? Why was, uh, what really are the sort of founding ideals of of America? Are they those that are traditionally associated with uh, democracy and republicanism and the Enlightenment? Or is there a sort of dark underbelly uh, marked by slavery and unfreedom and the broader sort of issue of colonialism. So, and that's the question we want to tackle today. We want to tackle that not just because it's a hugely interesting question in and of its own right, but also because this uh, question is very symptomatic of perhaps a malaise that's uh, spread across uh, right across the Western world, where these Enlightenment, uh, maybe liberal ideals, have increasingly been called into question and linked ever more irretrievably uh, to slavery, empire, and colonialism. And perhaps this whole question of America is even doubly important because, for various reasons, the United States has, of course, always been always featured as, if you like, as a yardstick or a beacon uh, for for the rest of the Western world. And a diverse group of writers, both uh, sort of broadly in favour or broadly against the American tradition, but have in some sense understood that America is bound up uh, with the destiny of the Western world. So in this session, we want to get to grips with that moment of foundation, the ideals and indeed the social reality that shaped it, and ask what this means for us today. 
So Cheryl, um, over to you. Thank you very much, Jacob. So the debate about the nature of the American Revolution has been going on for a very long time. Um, I think since the event itself, for sure. Um, and I've been involved in that discussion for at least 20 years. Um, but until the last few years, it has been mostly um, confined to the classroom or to the academic conference. And it's a fascinating debate among historians and it's healthy and it's right that new evidence and interpretations are continually discussed and debated within the discipline. But it now seems that the debate has gone public. Um, and almost everything has kind of been sucked into the culture wars. But the revolution, which sits at the heart of American identity, you know, it's about the nation's founding, has become a real lightning rod for the two sides of the culture war to clash over. You know, so everything from the Tea Party movement to the um, recent musical about Alexander Hamilton, you know, there have been lots of manifestations of the problem of the founding in political life today. So it is the case that both the public and the academic debate have grown more engaged and more divisive. So it's pretty ironic actually that the most nationalistic of historical themes, the American Revolution, which has traditionally worked to cohere and unite Americans around a common set of values, has in the context of the culture wars, being deployed and weaponized by opposing sides. And these kind of history wars over the founding are played out through um, public controversies over statues, exhibitions, public monuments, school curricula, and in popular culture. And the questions about the role of race and slavery at the founding have been particularly weaponized. I think this is a real problem. You know, more public debate about history is good for sure. And, you know, I'm not a gatekeeper for the historical profession, but it's the nature of the debate that actually infects academia as much as it does the public that I find quite difficult and worrying um, in the present moment. It's, it's not just that it's divisive and racialized, which it is, but it, that it's been emptied of historical thinking in any meaningful sense. That is, it's increasingly what historians call presentist. Um, but I'll come back to what I mean by that. We've already um, discussed that a little bit this morning. But I thought it might be useful to set out briefly, um, because I'm assuming that most people here, you know, don't haven't read a lot around the American Revolution. But I just wanted to kind of set out briefly one influential historical interpretation of the relationship between race, slavery and revolution and set that alongside the most popular current presentist version as told by the New York Times 1619 project. So the best historical treatment of the theme is historian Edmund Morgan's 1975 book, American Slavery, American Freedom, which is probably the best history book I've ever read. And a lot of American historians will say the same. It's full of paradox, it's full of complexity. And Morgan examines the coexistence of freedom and slavery in colonial Virginia, where many leading patriots, Washington, Jefferson, Madison, all came from. And he uses a clear historical narrative, he pays close attention to the sources, and he has a sensitivity to the complexity of human motivation. And he asks, how can it be that claims on freedom as a natural right 
could ring out so loudly from the mouths of patriot slave owners during the American Revolution. So to answer that question, he firstly examines the English historical antecedents of the labour conditions and the political rights of Virginia. So it unfolds a kind of story in early Virginia of English indentured servants and African slaves working in similar conditions and with similar restrictions for the first several decades of settlement. Before the 1660s, there's evidence that white servants and black slaves suffered under similarly oppressive work regimes. They ate and slept together. They made common cause in running away. They became lovers. Um, and both groups shared the stigma of poverty. Um, and in fact, Morgan notes that it may have been difficult to distinguish race prejudice from class prejudice in early Virginia. So then between 1619, when the first slaves arrived, and the 1660s or 70s, when clearer and more formal distinctions between Africans and Europeans emerge, a number of things happened that encouraged the differentiation between those two groups. So one thing that happens is that mortality rates improve so that investment in slaves becomes less risky. So in the early years of the colony, when disease and death were really common, it made more sense to contract servants so that they would share the risk. And by 1660, the situation had reversed and slaves and investment in slaves become less of a risk because, you know, you're more likely, they're less likely to die and you're more likely to get a whole life's worth of their labour. The thing about indentured servants was that when they gained their freedom after six or seven years service, like when their contract ended, they went west and they claimed land on the frontier. And in the west, they came into conflict with Native Americans and they were exposed to attacks from other imperial powers. They expected their colonial government to protect them and a lot of resentment built up against the political elites who took um, their taxes and then failed to protect them from either Indians or from the Dutch attacks on their crops. So that in um, Morgan explains in 1676, Nathaniel Bacon, who was um, an elite landowner and populist leader, he led an uprising against Governor Berkeley. Now, Bacon's rebellion was crushed, but the Virginia elite came to realise that sending more young single men out to the frontier after they'd served their indenture would really just ask for more trouble and that a more reliable, more stable form of, uh, of labour was needed. So for Morgan, Bacon's rebellion is closely connected to the formalization of slavery, not directly, but in the sense that it awakened the elite in Virginia to the need for tighter controls over social inferiors. And there was a kind of forging of a racial unity among whites in the colony, um, and which was used by the elites as a way to smooth over the class conflict and the unrest out on the Western frontier. Now, the slave trade was already supplying thousands of black Africans to the Caribbean and to South America. So there was already a, an available supply. Um, it wasn't just some kind of mad hat or conspiratorial scheme by the colonial elite, but it was a pragmatic decision which also suited their political purposes. So according to Morgan, the conditions of slavery, freedom and white political solidarity were all in place by 1700. And then really you just needed the kind of political ideology that would 
hold it all together. And the Republican ideas that came out of the English Commonwealth provided that political ideology. So Morgan says that white Virginians held a special appreciation of the freedom dear to Republicans because they saw every day what life would be without it. That is, it would be the life of a slave. So by the time of the revolution, Virginians had the example of slavery before them that made their freedom more highly prized. And the Republican creed of the free and independent citizen that informed their revolutionary zeal against the British Empire rested on the existence of slaves, which is what Morgan points to as the central paradox in US history. So it wasn't that they were hypocrites espousing freedom while slavery existed among them. It was precisely because slavery existed among them that they espoused freedom so strongly and so passionately. Okay, so that's a very influential political um, a historical uh, analysis. Um, come to the present, in 2019, the New York Times magazine launches a series of essays about the US founding that sought to provide a radical reframing, as they say, of the nation's origin story. The 1619 Project, which was masterminded by the journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones, sought to commemorate the 400 years since the first African slaves arrived in Virginia, and it made the provocative case that 1619, rather than 1776, marked the real foundational moment for the United States as a nation. And I'm going to try to give the project a fair summary, but it's quite hard given how ahistorical and flawed it is. <laughs> Despite that, the project drew great acclaim and spawned live events, a podcast series, educational packs for schools, a TV series and a film in collaboration with Oprah Winfrey and a Pulitzer Prize for Nicole Hannah-Jones. It also garnered ferocious opposition from several quarters, um, including from several prominent historians, which I kind of managed to save my faith in my profession a little bit. So Jones has said that the 1619 Project emerged out of a tweet that was directed at her stating that, quote, slavery was a long time ago, why can't you get over it? She retorted that she would get over it when the nation got over it and she set out to, um, in the project, to delineate the many ways that the heritage of slavery still remained within the culture, society and economy of the United States. So the essays in the project looked at things as wide ranging as the high levels of sugar in the American diet to the high school curriculum, to overcrowded prisons, um, to traffic jams in Atlanta, which was caused by white flight to the suburbs. And Jones's own lead essay on American democracy, which claims that the year 1619 is as important to the American story as 1776, and that black Americans are the nation's true founding fathers, is the headline grabber and the most contentious. Another strongly contested claim is that American colonists um, did not fight for liberty from empire, but that they fought primarily to preserve slavery because Britain was already making moves to abolish it and that they were worried that there might be a tax on slavery in the colonies. So Jones actually makes it very clear, and she has done in, in many public talks, that it was the present conditions in the US and not the realities of the past that drove her interest in the subject. But her central contentious claims in the 1619 Project are based on the work of Marxist historian Gerald Horn, which 
And his work points to two events that indicate how British abolitionism unnerved the colonists. So the first event was the Somerset decision of 1772, in which an English judge ruled that the slave owner Charles Stuart could not compel his slave that he'd bought in the colonies and then to England, um, a slave named James Somerset, um, to board a ship for a life of continued slavery in Jamaica. So the Somerset versus Stuart decision was decided in favour of Somerset, the slave, um, and it confirmed that slavery in England had no legal status or protection. The second event is the, in 1775, the royal governor of Virginia, Lord Dunmore, issues a proclamation after he's abandoned his residence for the safety of a British ship in the face of colonists' anger and rebellion, declaring all indentured servants and slaves free if they were willing to fight for the British to put down the rebellion. So his Ethiopian reg regiment of freed slaves recruited around 800 men, but his proclamation was printed throughout the 13 colonies, and so around 20,000 slaves ultimately served in the British army um, as a way to gain their freedom. Um, only about 5,000 fought for the Continental Army. Now, this is the sum of the evidence behind the claim that the American Revolution was a pro-slavery revolution. And um, its explanatory power just doesn't stack up well, given that the colonial conflict with the British was already well underway when both events took place. So there had already been the 1765 Stamp Act crisis, the Townsend duties of 1767, which led to the Boston Massacre in 1770 and the Boston Tea Party of 1773. And fighting proper broke out at Lexington and Concord in April 1775, seven months before Lord Dunmore's proclamation. On top of that, the most influential written documents of the period indicate that taxation, representation and sovereignty drove the conflict and that these sources make no mention of the Somerset decision at all. Now, I don't want to get bogged down in the details. Well, I love getting bogged down in the details, but there's no time here. So what I've presented to you is these two contrasting explanations for the relationship between race, slavery and revolution to highlight some of the problems with current presentist presentations. And these two interpretations, you know, represent the fundamental reconfiguration that's taken place in the relationship between the present and the past, um, and especially in thinking about the American Revolution in the last few decades. So the shift represents what philosopher Francois Hartog sees as a break in time or a shift in our society's temporal orientation. So in his book, Regimes of Historicity, Hartog notes that before the French Revolution, an orientation toward the past dominated our understanding of time or our, our orientation toward time. And then an orientation toward the future dominated um, from the late 18th century until around 1980. And then a present orientation dominates in the years since 1980. So Hartog's regimes of historicity are quite useful conceptual tools to help to understand how, as he puts it, quote, the present became something immense, invasive and omnipresent, blocking out any other viewpoint, fabricating on a daily basis the past and the future it needs. So the consequent politicization of history and historicization of politics 
can be read specifically through this example of the 1619 project. So just quickly, three problems, many more exist, three problems with the 1619 project. The 1619 project versions of the past starts with the assumption that racism is a constant throughout American history. It's not something that needs to be explained, it's just there. The project then goes on um, looking for examples and evidence of it. Um, so uh, it tries to fit historical facts around the assumption, even if it's trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. Second, the project reduces historical complexities into a monocausal, simplistic explanation for all events in the American past and reduces them to the result of racism or white supremacy. It collapses and it flattens historical experience. And I hope that the contrast with Morgan, with Morgan's thesis, really underlines how historical experience isn't flat. But it does more than that. It disappears the revolution. This is the, it's kind of most egregious error um, or problem is that it disappears the revolution from history, the revolution of 1776, and it replaces it with 1619. So it erases all of the changes that the revolution wrought from the historical record, um, or at least marks them as significant, insignificant. So the revolution only happened in order to keep things as they were, with whites on top and blacks oppressed and nothing changed. So claims on the founding are no longer the means through which historians orientate Americans toward the future. Instead, they more often telescope a fractured national past into a segmented present. And the ideals and the values of the revolutionary myth of liberty, equality, the pursuit of happiness have shed their universal and aspirational character and therefore their ability to unify at the national level. So just in conclusion, um, unfortunately, more and more history looks like the 1619 project. Um, the failure of nerve or the loss of confidence in framing history and in the robustness of the stories that we tell reinforces this in the sense that only the present exists. So there is certainly no need to kind of paper over cracks or minimize the horrors that past generations of slaves or free but oppressed African-Americans faced either before, during or after the revolution. But there is a need for a history that understands how change happens. And there is a need for a sense of the future. With the understanding of the continual present as promulgated in the culture wars of founding fathers as either saints or sinners and the revolution as either essential or irrelevant to national existence, um, there is no history. And without history, there is no future. Let me begin by talking about something that happened to me four years back when I first visited the African-American Museum, the new museum uh, on the mall in DC, which is across the river from where I live in Virginia, in Alexandria, Virginia. Two things struck me about the museum. Firstly, it was in one sense a failure. It was a splendid failure. It was a museum for African-Americans, but you couldn't go to the museum without recognizing how important the contribution of African-Americans is to American history and culture. I mean, you, you can't imagine music, for example, without taking the African-American the African -American influence very importantly into account. And, and you know, the same is true of, of 
so many other areas of our culture. So, so that struck me. But the second thing that struck me was, you know, right, this was um, more or less the Canadian view of the American Revolution. And I'm what it's called a dual. I'm, I'm both Canadian and American. And so what I was seeing in the museum was a, a recognition of things that had been suppressed in American history, things that one was familiar with growing up in Canada, but uh, which Americans weren't much familiar with. And these are things that Cheryl has talked about. Uh, Lord Dunmore was an imperial popinjay, to be sure, but nevertheless, Dunmore's war in 1775 and the prospect of a servile revolt was something these Virginians took great notice of. Uh, and then you had that extraordinary interview between um, Lord Dorchester, then Sir Guy Carleton, and George Washington in 1773 when they, they negotiated the evacuation of the British Army and the Loyalists from New York. And Dunmore, uh, Washington, angrily demanded that all the slaves in the ships of the Royal Navy in the harbor be returned to him. And Dunmore said, um, I'm not going to do that because it would be inconsistent with my honor as a, as a, as a British officer to return these people who supported us to slavery where they might be beaten and even killed or hung. So we're, we're not going to do that. Um, you know, and there's an unfinished story there, right? You know, the Confederate monuments have been going down for the last year or so. And so Enrichment Monument Avenue is denuded. Uh, and I think we need new monuments. And, and it seems to me a, 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 a suitable candidate would be a fellow who freed four or 5,000 slaves in 1780 in Virginia. Um, so we might have to revise our thinking about, uh, about uh, disloyalty, but why not a statue for Benedict Arnold if it's after all, all about slavery? Right, which which brings me to the 1619 project. So, was it all about slavery in the end? Well, it was importantly um, about slavery. Um, Somerset's case, which Cheryl referred to, was well known in America, and uh, it is reported was known by slaves as well. The decision, by the way, is something I very much recommend you look at. It's a decision of Lord Mansfield. Mansfield basically just adopted it, the, the, the language from Blackstone, who in 1765 wrote how inconsistent the idea of slavery is with, with British law. And, and Blackstone's commentaries were as well read on this side of the Atlantic as, as they were in Britain. So, so it was there. And then, you know, why Virginia? Why did, you know, the curious thing is, why did Virginia join the revolution? Virginia was the most Anglican of colonies, at least amongst the planter class that, that dominated Virginian politics. And Anglicans were loyalists, by and large. Um, Jonathan Clark says, well, it was real, they were really congregationalists, but, but in a way, all Anglicans were. Elsewhere, however, in, in places like New York, the Anglicans were strongly loyalists. I mean, they were on that ship, those ships, that fleet that left for Halifax in 1783. So why is Virginia different? Well, 
you know, the, the idea of a servile revolt is, is always there, the fear of that revolt. There are other things going on. Um, there is a debt crisis in Virginia, and importantly, uh, the revolution, the first American secession, was a bankruptcy petition, not only with respect to America's share of the national debt, but with respect to private debts as well. You know, I mean, you know, the, the courts in this area were closed for 20 years and only reopened in 1795. And 1795 was the year of the Treaty of Paris, which was terribly controversial about requiring Americans to pay their their their, their debts to Scottish factors and British bankers. Um, so that was going on as well. Um, and then there's the role of ideology, right? Um, you know, how present was it? If you read the debates of the framers of the Constitution in 1787, they are well aware of the inconsistency between the language of the Declaration and the state of slavery in America. Um, they abhor slavery. You'll find impassioned speeches about slavery from many of the delegates, from um, people like uh, George Mason or Governor Morris, uh, people who, you know, who importantly put the Constitution together. Morris, probably more than anyone, is the is the father of the American Constitution. Um, so why did they? permit slavery. Well, they had no choice in the matter, right? I mean, the choice was either we create a country where there'll be slaves, slavery in some states, or we won't have a country. And the possibility of a national breakup was very much there in 1787. The delegates thought, well, we, you know, we, we, we might split up into three different countries. Um, what's so bad about that, right? I mean, it was different in 1776 when we had to fight a war, but we're, you know, we're not there now. It's not such a big deal. Uh, but they wanted to put together a country. And uh, whilst they despised the idea of slavery, they also included in the Constitution something called a fugitive slave clause, which required slaves to be returned to their masters if they escaped from the South to the freer states in the North that had abolished slavery. So, you know, it, it was there in the Constitution. It was snuck in at the very end of the Constitution, the debates. It was not remarked upon in the debates, but it was there. And when teeth was given to the Fugitive Slave Clause uh, in the 1850s, the reaction in the North was absolute fury. I mean, um, the... Um, a prominent abolitionist described the Constitution as a covenant with death and an agreement with hell. That was uh, William Lloyd Garrison. Um, the Americans were very good about kicking the can down the road. They did so in 1776. They did so in 1787. They did so with various compromises like the Missouri Compromise of 1820, which Jefferson called a fire bell in the night by which he meant, look, we're kicking it down the road, but we're, we're going to have to live up to this. We're going to have to do something about it. And, and, and eventually they did. Um, so the role of ideology was there. And good American historians who thought carefully about the revolutionary period, I'm thinking of Gordon Wood uh, in particular, um, talked about how the, the ideology of freedom in the Constitution and in the Declaration worked its way out 
over time in American history, which while it began in darkness, uh, emerged in sunlight over time. Uh, one of the first great feminist statements, the Seneca Falls Declaration in the 19th century, simply quoted the Declaration of Independence and said, this applies to uh, women as well. And then you have in, in 1964, Martin Luther King's speech, which he called, where he said, I'm, I'm presenting a promissory note from the fathers of, of, of America, the framers of America, to America today. And so, you, you know, it's, it, it's a mixed history. It's, it's, uh, it's, 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 we were asked to choose between sin or freedom. Well, of course, it's sin is always there, right? It's there in America. Um, the question is how you react to it and, and do you work your way out? Did the Civil War count after all? I mean, all those deaths, the war didn't begin over the issue of slavery. It began over the issue of union. Lincoln was prepared to agree to an amendment which would guarantee the status of slavery in America forever, right? So the war began in 1861, not over slavery. My, my town of Alexandria was invaded then. Um, but by the, by the by 1863, it becomes a war about emancipation. And, and, you know, and that doesn't happen quickly. I mean, emancipation does, but it's followed by compromises in 1876, which preserved the rights of whites in the South to run the politics from their state houses. Uh, Jim Crow begins at that point. When you think about America working out its, its history with Blacks, you have to remember, um, well, there's a generation. The um, boomers amongst the Blacks are people who lived through Jim Crow in many cases, right? Those protests um, what, beginning in... Greensboro, North Carolina in 1960. These are people who are still alive, many of them, right? Um, and if you're, you know, if you're my age and you're, you're African-American, you'll, you'll have had some experience with this, some direct experience. And then you have their children, right? Their kids and their kids, you know, perhaps have not had, certainly have not had the same experience of racial prejudice. They've had some, not so much. And then you have their grandkids who, you know, aren't really seeing it at all, except as it's buoyed up by, you know, popular movements, uh, you know, like Black Lives Matter. Well, by the way, one of the extraordinary things about all of this is how America exports its culture. We exported Black Lives Matter to Britain. Tell me, how, how, just how did that happen? I mean, I, I, don't, I don't get it. I suspect it has something to do with American narcissism. You know, it's not merely that we're the greatest country in the world, but if we're evil, we're also the most evil country in the world. So pay attention to us, right? I mean, it's, in the end, it's all about us. Um, 
So you get this, this dynamic in American politics that's going on where the grandkids are kind of getting over it. The same thing, by the way, is happening to immigrants, right? So the Republican Party is, is beginning to make inroads on with the third generation. Um, is there really lingering racism in a country that so much seems to be going out of its way to erase its history, uh, to make accommodations for African-Americans, to have uh, an entire system of, of, of work dedicated to the proposition that we have to move African-Americans up. Well, yeah, I think there are lingering, there is some lingering racism. I think it's mostly liberal racism, however, at this point. There are a variety of policies completely supported by, by Democrats, by liberal Americans, which uh, have had terrible consequences for African Americans. Immigration, for example, is associated with black unemployment. I mean, we're, what we're doing is we're importing, um, you know, Hispanics roughly to do cheap work, which otherwise might be done by African-Americans, right? I mean, that started around 30 years back. It's intensified. Uh, if you're African-American, you should, for self-interested reasons, oppose open borders, right? Then you have education. You have an absolutely extraordinarily bad K-12 schools in America, public schools. You have a movement towards white exodus in terms of charter schools, and uh, you know, which are not racist at all, but but you know which offer a, a bit of breathing room for white Americans, and also for gifted and talented programs in public schools. So, you know. The, the elite end up doing okay in terms of education. M much of the prejudice in America is uh, at the suburban level. Home prices here are very much a factor of how uh, great the African-American presence is. Uh, and a suburban class of liberals moves out to places where the housing prices reflect the ethnic composition of a, uh, uh, and the schools uh, of the local area. And then you have, you know, the, the, the regulatory morass, which put places a burden in the face of people who want to enter jobs. There are licensing requirements, for example. Um, but the regulatory state is something that employs, you know, liberal Americans. I mean, there, there are a vast number of jobs associated with the regulatory state, and, and these go generally to uh, white liberals. So we have not yet worked things out. But I have to say that amongst the things which, um, if you want to tell the American story, it's, it's like the African American Museum. It's importantly an African American story. But it's also an ideological story, where America has over time come to appreciate the inconsistency between its ideals and the way it has uh, treated African-Americans. And that obviously is, is, is at an official level, you know, very much over. And it's a function of playing catch up to what those ideals were. We haven't quite worked out that promissory note, right? The, the lingering effects of racism, I think, are, are importantly in places like public schools and migration. Um, 
But America has made great strides towards doing all of that. The progress is was extraordinarily slow. Um, I mean, you know, Teddy Roosevelt invited Booker T. Washington to the White House for dinner in 1904, and that was a scandal. I mean, it's just, um, and, you know, and then the sit-in demonstrations of the 1960s, the civil rights workers, um, within living memory for many millions of Americans. So it's, it's still very recent stuff. What's at issue with the 1619 project is something I think a little different. It's not just a story about African-Americans. It's a story as inevitably anything about African-Americans is about America in, in general. It's, it's about the erasure of our history. If it's really all about slavery, if, if the revolution and the constitution should be seen exclusively through the prism of slavery, then there's absolutely nothing noble about America. And you should wonder why anyone would choose to live in so infamous a country as the United States, right? So those are the stakes, right? It's, it's, uh, it's the, idea of America really is the embodiment of pure evil. And that means the destruction of, of America itself. I mean, we're composed, we're, to the extent America exists, it exists as something in our imagination, you know, our imagination about a great country. And if you destroy that, if you destroy American history, as the 1619 Project did, you also destroy American nationhood. Ernest Renan said that a nation is composed by the remembrance of glorious moments in the past, but also the forgetfulness of the inglorious moments. And, and America has been very good about forgetting those, those uh, not so pleasant moments. And... Uh, and now it's awakened to the fact that they're there. But I think what is needed now is a degree of forgetfulness. Um, certainly what's not going to be needed is riots of the kind we saw throughout last year. And, and a return to something like normalcy. Uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, after some revolts in the 1960s and quoting Lord Durham, said, what we need is a period of benign neglect. I don't know if I'd go quite that far, but I think we need a rediscovery of the goodness of America, uh, whilst not remembering the sinful aspects either. And I think it's so important now because with the COVID shut-ins and, and with Black Lives Matter, there's really an epidemic of loneliness in America. I mean, this was exasperated by the 2020 election and by the riot at the Capitol on, on January 6th. But, you know, we're at the point right now where people don't talk to each other. Um, I mean, maybe you have a bit of this in Britain as well with cancel culture. But the idea is uh, anything you say can and probably will be used against you. So therefore, keep your mouth shut. And above all, never tell a joke. I mean, that, that you know, uh, and that, that's absolutely shocking. You know, e even in the Soviet era, in the Brezhnev era, there were Soviet jokes that Reagan used to quote. There aren't jokes anymore. Right? I mean, much too dangerous. 
So I think a return to mental health also means a kind of forgetfulness about all of things raised by the 1619 Project. Thanks to Dr. Cheryl Hudson and Professor Francis Buckley for those two thought-provoking talks around the theme, Sin or Freedom? What was the foundation of America? The Academy Online will be back later this year with an event that explores the character of elite society in the 21st century. We'd love to see you at that event, and we'll also be releasing the talks here on this Ideas Matters podcast, so do make sure and subscribe through your usual channels. Finally, a reminder on our appeal for donations. If you can help us out financially, then please do visit www.theboi.co.uk and hit the donate button. We'd much appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks.